If you will, take your Bible and open it to that very passage that was just read, Matthew chapter 24. We have been on this journey uh, in the life of Christ from the perspective of Matthew's gospel. Matthew really tells the story beautifully of Jesus as our king and that there is, in fact, a kingdom of God. A kingdom of heaven is the way Matthew records it. Luke would say the kingdom of God. Luke's gospel records our Lord as saying the kingdom of God is within you or among you. And that's what our Lord tells us, that he came as the king, and even in that day, those who were followers of Jesus were those who were more associated with his kingdom than even the kingdom of the world at that time. Of course, we know that the Jews were under the occupation of Rome, and uh, so some difficult things were happening. Rome, obviously being a pagan nation, was trying to convince the Jews that they must see Caesar as God, which would be blasphemy to a Jew, and they were facing these times. And Jesus comes in that day. You would think that he might attack or at least address that issue and he would try and help the Jews out of that occupation, he did not. That was not the purpose of his coming. Let me say this. In our day today, we see many acts of chaos and destruction occurring around our nation. This is really a difficult day to live in. Wouldn't you agree? And yet, I'm telling you, that's not the focus of the church. It was not the focus of Christ to set straight all the societal woes he did minister to people. He ministered to them in their physical needs. He would feed them, clothe them. He comforted them. He came near to the sinner. Those things took place, but not for the purpose of reform. He was not trying to reform the world. He came near to them and ministered to them and touched them and healed them because he is God, and he was trying to draw them to the fact that you are amongst God, and a new kingdom is coming and now is in my presence being with you. They couldn't grasp that. But that's what Jesus was up to. We too live in this world where every day we hear about chaos and destruction. And if we didn't know any better as believers, we would think that God is no longer sovereign, that somehow he's lost his position over the world. That's not true. Don't believe that nonsense. Believe me, Pilate even questioned Jesus. He said to Jesus in John 18, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus essentially said to him, yes, because Jesus answered in verse 36, just a few verses later, my kingdom, he must be a king if it's his kingdom, right? My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting against you, Pilate, against the Roman Empire. But my kingdom's not of this world, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. In other words, this is my kingdom. My kingdom is to come to seek and to save lost people. You and I who have been found, who have been saved out of darkness into light, those of us who've been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, we are subjects of the kingdom of God. Christ now rules and reigns in our hearts. And we go into this world and we see trouble and trial all around us. And we should care about people enough to help them. But never should that become the absolute priority of our existence. 
Our priority is to share the gospel so that lost people can be saved. What good does it do to be all about some political agenda of reformation when, when those people die, they're going to hell? Wouldn't you rather be part of a regeneration to share the gospel and see the Holy Spirit save them eternally so that whether they ever experience the peace in this life or not, there is a peace to come. And as a believer, there's a peace even in the trial, in the time of suffering. See, this is how, as a church, we need to approach the day that we live in. Don't get so lost in all that's happening around you. Jesus gives a strong teaching here today. I'm so excited to share it. The Apostle Paul even said in Romans 14, 17, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. The kingdom of God is about righteousness, joy, and peace in the Holy Spirit. So those of us who belong to Christ can have righteousness, peace, and joy right now. Question, do you have it? Or have you been duped by the enemy? Have you been swayed by the flesh to get caught up in all that's happening around you and you've lost the joy of the Lord? There is no peace in your heart today. It should be there because the Spirit of God dwells within you if you're saved. So now today we focus on this Olivet Discourse. If you have never heard of that, Jesus gave several discourses in the Gospel of Matthew. This is the final one, and this is a two-chapter discourse, chapter 24 and 25. To set that up, let me just say that Jesus has entered Jerusalem on the triumphal entry in chapter 21, and now the last three chapters, he's been addressing the religious leaders, the false leaders of Jerusalem. Much of that discussion and dialogue and the questions and debate that have gone on have occurred at the temple. In fact, the very first thing Jesus does after coming in the triumphal entry, the triumphal entry of Christ, by the way, for Passover when he came into Jerusalem, was to actually say, this is the king. They just didn't get it. They didn't see it that way. They saw him as the king right now, take out the Romans. Build a palace, build a kingdom. We're part of it. That's not what he meant. But then he goes, he makes a beeline for the, for the temple. And what does he do? He chases out the money changers. This is the second time that Jesus has done that. What was that all about? He was chasing out those who were in leadership, spiritual leadership over the people of Israel because they were making it difficult for God's people to worship him. And Jesus got rid of them. And then, of course, the scribes and the Pharisees come to him. And then it's the, Pharise uh, then it's the uh, Jerusalem council, the Jews. Uh, the, the, they, they all come at different times, at different waves, while Jesus, during the final week of his ministry in Jerusalem, he's there. Again, much of it happening at the temple. And so it says in verse 1, Jesus left the temple. So this is now towards the end of his life. He will never again go back to the temple 
in this life. He goes away. That word, that phrase, going away, literally means to not return. He's not going to return in the physical, in the flesh, to the temple. When his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. Let me give you a little more clarity on that. Mark's gospel says it this way in chapter 13, verse 1. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. So he's admiring the temple. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left, uh, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Now, why would the disciples try and turn our Lord's attention back towards the temple as he's leaving? I mean, all he's done all week since the Lord's day, all he's done is try and refute the Jews and deal with the issues that they bring before him. He's taken in the last chapter seven woes to the Pharisees. He's warning the people of the Pharisees, the false teachers. He's also telling his disciples, you're not like them. You're about to lead the church in a matter of a little over 50 days from now, and you will not be like them. You will be led by the Spirit of the living God through the Word of God. And he's telling the people, take your eyes off of the Pharisees. Put your eyes on the disciples. They will be the leaders. God is going to use them in a mighty, powerful way. And so now all of a sudden, Jesus turns away, and the disciples are wanting him to turn back and look at the temple. Look at the beauty of the temple. In Matthew 23, verse 37, listen to what Jesus said. If you want to know why the disciples were turning him back, I think this has to play into it. We don't know for sure. This is plausible, though. In chapter 23, verse 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Look at the, verse, look at the next verse. See... Your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. When will they say that? At the end, when Jesus returns. Until the second coming, they will not say that. And Jesus says, Because you rejected me while I was among you, your house is now desolate. You see, a few days earlier, Jesus had referred to the temple as his father's house, back in chapter 21, verse 13. But the blessing and glory of God were being removed from Israel. When Jesus literally leaves the temple, here in verse 1, the glory of God is leaving with him. In Ezekiel eleven twenty-three, 23, this actual experience that we're reading about in Matthew 24, 1, is prophesied. Ezekiel 11:23 and the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city. It's interesting. We're going to see in just a moment in the text that Jesus leaves the temple. They make their way down across the Kidron Valley and then up the side of a mountain called the Mount of Olives. Let's go ahead and put that up on the screen so you can see it. I'll step to the side. Okay, so here, this would be the, the temple enclosure. Okay, and this is at the time of Christ. So this temple that is there, uh, the first temple, obviously, Solomon built. 
it was destroyed. The second temple, it was Zerubbabel and uh, Ezra who built the temple. And, and this temple actually was, was, the, was much smaller than, than what you currently see. It actually was smaller when they built that temple. It was actually uh, Herod the Great who back in 19 B.C. began to do an 80-year construction project on the temple. He made it larger. He made it extravagant. He put gold plates all the way around the temple at the top. These white marble stones, get this now, 12 by 12 by 20. 12 feet high, 12 feet wide, 20 feet long. Can you imagine that, Lincoln, trying to work with a building made of, of marble that size from a quarry more than a mile away? How did they ever haul? But here's the thing. They did all the cutting at the quarry so perfectly that when they laid these stones on the temple, you couldn't take a piece of paper and slide it between the rocks. They didn't need any mortar. These stones fit perfectly. By the way, to this day... The Jews are skilled craftspeople, amen? And back then they were. And so this temple was much larger. They actually built a retaining wall on the southeast, uh, I'm sorry, the southeast corner and the south side uh, in order to broaden to make the courtyard area much double the size that it was that Ezra and Zerubbabel built. So that's the, that's the temple. Jesus leaves the temple. This is the east side, and he goes down. This is the Kidron Valley. He leaves, crosses the Kidron. Look where he's making his way, up to the Mount of Olives. Here's the Garden of Gethsemane where he prays, and the soldiers take him away. But he goes all the way up to, to somewhere along the side that he can still see. The, the disciples have just said, look at the beauty of this, Lord. Isn't it beautiful? And Jesus is looking back and going, fellas, that is a desolate place now. I just left. The glory of God just departed. This beautiful building, and by the way, Jesus goes on. We'll, we'll, we'll look at it here in the text. Uh, the disciples are troubled, though, because uh, when it says your house is left desolate, what does that mean? So look what they say in verse 2. Uh, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said, you see all these, do, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Now that would seem impossible knowing the size of these stones, the size of this temple. Now, let me just share with you verse 3. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when all these things will be. When are these stones going to be completely knocked down? What, what are you talking about? What's going on here? What will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? By the way, when the disciples are asking questions about uh, the sign of Christ's coming, they're not thinking of the second coming that you and I are thinking of. They still believe that Jesus is going to, he might go away, but he's coming back in their lifetime to establish an earthly kingdom. They still think that's going to happen. And so Jesus gives this teaching, and this teaching is powerful, but this teaching is not directed uh, primarily at them. It's about the end of the age. It's about his second coming. He's going to take them to the distant future 
and let them know what's going to happen in the end. And, and you say, well, how do you know that? How do you know it's not for the people? By the way, there's several uh, eschatological views uh, of the end times, several views. And some people in an amillennial view would say that the tribulation literally started when Christ ascended, and it, it won't end until he returns. Others take a more literal view, and they believe that there is actually a seven-year tribulation that is spoken of in Daniel, in Ezekiel, also in Revelation. And Jesus refers to the tribulation. So they take a, a very different approach. I believe that. I, I, I lean towards a premillennial uh, view of uh, eschatology. Uh, it's okay if you don't, because nobody knows for sure. So if anybody's trying to tell you they know exactly what's going to happen, this is the way it's going to be, uh, they're nuts. Because regarding whatever view you take, believe me, you can make some pretty strong arguments for it. And uh, up until about 200 years ago, everybody took the, pre, the uh, amillennial view pretty much. So, so it, it, don't get lost in all that. The point is not how Jesus is going to return. You, know? you don't want to be on the the, you know, his welcoming committee, okay? Uh, or I'm sorry, you don't want to be on the planning committee for how you're, you want the welcoming committee. Just be glad when he returns, amen? How he does it, who cares? Okay, so, well, it does matter because scripture says it matters. So we're going to take a look at this, but I'm going to give you more of a premillennial view of this. The reason I don't believe he's addressing the disciples directly uh, about what's going to happen in the end is because they're not going to be there. He actually refers here in a couple verses about the end being, the beginning of the end being like birth pangs of a woman. Well, when does a woman begin to have birthing pangs? Does she have them at conception? No. Does she have birth pains while she's carrying the child for, you know, eight plus months? No. Birth pains occur at the very end. They occur at the end. He also says that uh, this will be the sign at the end, and the, and, and the sign is of his second coming. Well, hey, he hasn't come yet, which tells me this is not the end yet, which should tell us that the disciples were not part of the end that he's talking about here. And so let's look at this if we can. Let's take a strong look. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, verse 3, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when these things will be and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Now, tell us what these things will be. So Jesus answers this question in verses 4 through 14, which maybe we'll cover today. I hope we do, but we probably won't. Uh, verse 14, Jesus describes six signs of birth pains. Again, when do the birth pains happen for a woman in labor? At the end, right? So these are the signs at the end right before his coming, that will occur. Here they are. Let me give them to you. For, write them down if you'd like. Number one, deception by false Christs. Many false Christs will come, and people will be deceived. Number two, dissension among the nations of the world. Great dissension. Number three, worldwide devastation, unlike anything you and I have ever seen in our lifetime. Number four, deliverance of believers to tribulation. Number five, defection of false believers. And number six, the declaration of the gospel 
to the whole world. My wife is saying, slow down, slow down. We'll cover each one as we go. Verse 4, let's start with deceptions by false Christ. And Jesus answered them, see that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. By the way, just because these are, these are birth pains right before the end doesn't mean that we don't experience each and every one of these things to some degree now. We do. The disciples experienced them. The disciples all suffered martyr deaths. They were persecuted. It was speaking of persecution. So it doesn't mean that it doesn't start until the end, but it magnifies. What, what is it about? Uh, a, now see, I'm not speaking out of experience here, but a woman who's giving birth to a baby, from, what, from watching my wife, I can confidently say that when the birth pains began, when the labor went, began, the pains weren't quite as great, and they were farther apart. And as she got closer to delivering a baby, they came closer together, and they increased in intensity. Ladies, can I get an amen? The preacher's not off on this one? Okay. So I'm not speaking from experience, ladies. I'm not trying to act like I'm the specialist on this. I'm just telling you, it increases. That's what is happening. The disciples and you and I in the church age experience many of these things but it's going to increase greatly because of some things that Jesus speaks of here. So, uh, the first birth pain to signal Christ's return will be the widespread deception by a proliferation of false Christ. Uh, there were false Christs, by the way, false messiahs before Jesus, but uh, it's going to increase after him. And we see that in our day, those who claim to be the Christ. There have been people who claim to be the Christ, claim to be Messiah, well, they're, they're false. That's all you got to say. You feel sorry for them. Because, well, you shouldn't because they're deceiving people. It's, it's of the enemy. It's not of the Lord. But Jesus is warning those who will be living during the end times, which will not include the believers of this age, I don't believe. I believe that the church will be raptured out before we come to the end of the age when Jesus returns. Okay? I, I believe that that day is is for those who get saved after the church is raptured. That's what he's dealing with here. And, and, and the deceptions are going to be even greater. The evils, the deceptions, the sorrows, the tragedies, the conflicts, the animosities that are going to happen right before the return of Christ are going to far exceed anything that in our lifetime we've ever known. Because deception will be at its apex. It's going to be at its worst. So Jesus warns, don't let anyone mislead you in this. Don't think the world's getting better. Don't put your eggs in the basket of just trying to bring reform to make the world better. Know that the world is in a downward spiral and it's not going to turn around. Therefore, as a church, our mission is not reformation. Our mission is regeneration. We want to share the gospel so that the world can be saved by Christ. Amen? That's what our focus has to be. Later in this discourse, Jesus will repeat this warning in Matthew 24, verse 23 and 24. He says, then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets, by the way, in the church today in Jesus Christ and a supposed church, there are many false prophets. Everybody seems to be a prophet today. When COVID broke, Prophets came out of the woodwork. 
Everybody was a prophet. This is what it means. This is what's going on. There were even pastors who were rebuking COVID like it was a demonic spirit. Ridiculous. Jesus speaks of pandemics. He speaks of sickness and disease. And so be very, very careful who you follow, even in our day. And yet, this is nothing compared to the amount of false Christ and false prophets that will exist as we move closer to the end. They'll, it says in, in Matthew 20, uh, 24, 24, they will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. They're going to have power, supernatural power, demonic power, and they will lead many towards an angel of light, Satan himself. That's coming. Now, the world is beginning to disintegrate. It's been that way from the beginning, ever since the fall. And suffering is going to continue, and suffering is going to become, towards the end, Jesus is saying, unbearable. Sin will reach its full potential. Why? Because the moral and spiritual influence of the church is going to be restrained towards the end. Okay? Uh, the restraining power of the, of the Holy Spirit is going to, or the, the power of the Spirit is going to be restrained. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. This is, this is 2,000 years ago. This letter was put out by Paul, and he says the, 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 Satan's already at work. But listen what he says. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. So, so in the day that we live right now, the church exists in power. The, the, the true church. The true church of Jesus Christ is not built on man's systems, on man's abilities, on man's resources. The true church of Jesus Christ is people who are absolutely, completely, utterly dependent upon God. And God is doing mighty things in and through those who believe him. And I believe that that's you and I today. We are the church. God wants to work through us to do his work. But there's coming a day when God's going to pull back. When the church is raptured and the spirit is pulled back, can you imagine, look how bad things are now with the church on the earth. <laughs> can you imagine what it's going to be like when the spirit restrains and allows all hell to break loose. <clears throat> I've been fighting this dry throat thing. You have a mint or something? <clears throat> Excuse me. I don't want to have a coughing fit in front of you folks. You'll think I'm demon-possessed or something. <laughs> Thank you, brother. Appreciate that. So, the world systems, the institutions, <laughs> they are right, right now in a downward spiral. Look at the government right now over America. Things that are being addressed, things that are bills that are passing, where, where it's evil. It's outright evil. And they're, they're suppressing truth in unrighteousness. Right now. We're not at the end. So get a picture of what it's going to be like in the end. 
They're taking, they're taking advantage <laughs> of, of desperate situations that are growing. An abundance of false uh, prophets are going to cleverly disguise themselves, and they're going to begin to claim that they have the answers, and this is what God is doing, and I am a representative of God. And I'm telling you, even right now in our day, people are flocking to these guys as they make these prophetic utterances. You know what's interesting about the, the, these modern prophets? Everything they say is positive about you. Oh, you're going to, God's going to bless you. You're going to have more wealth than you've ever thought imagined. He's going to give you social position and status, and you're going to have a title. And people are just like, oh. It's all false. Do you know the prophets in the Old Testament never gave simply a positive prophecy. They gave the oracles of, of blessing and woe. When they gave an oracle of blessing, oh, the people, wanted, they just loved them. Oh, you're wonderful. Jeremiah, what a wonderful blessing that you gave us today. But then Jeremiah would give a woe, woe unto you. Now they want to stone him to death. What would happen if these modern prophets started actually giving oracles of woe? Speaking of the things that we're talking about today, I'm telling you, this is not a popular subject in churches. Pastors will avoid chapter 24 of Matthew because people don't want to hear it. I really don't care if you want to hear it or not. I have to be faithful to God. That's why we teach verse by verse. You can't skip anything. This is not the easy stuff to hear. This is, hey, if, you're, if you built your church on tares, on weeds, just trying to get people to like you who are lost, and now you've got a church filled with these people who are lost, and you're just doing the things they like to do, and you're cool, and you got text messages up on the screen, and people can text, and you can, yeah, okay, yeah, let's, you're doing all that stuff. Let me tell you something. This message would run them out of the church. They would hate it because it's not positive. It doesn't put them in a good light. Nobody wants to hear that they're a sinner lost and destined for hell. And so a lot of churches stop saying that, just that God loves you. Well, God loves you enough to tell you the truth about your condition. No great doctor would ever say, I know he's got cancer, but he doesn't want to hear it. So I'm just going to tell him he's doing great. You keep it up. You're doing wonderful. Man, you look good. That's a, that's a lousy doctor. You want the truth, amen? So... The epitome of this false group of Antichrist is going to be the, the Antichrist, capital A, the ultimate false Messiah, the deceiver. See, just as Jesus Christ was righteousness incarnate, the Antichrist will be evil incarnate. In the book of Daniel, he is called an insolent king, skilled in intrigue. Boy, he will intrigue Christians, so-called Christians, away from Christ. A self-willed tyrant who magnifies himself above every god, speaks monstrous evils against the God of gods in chapter 11, verse 36 of Daniel. Paul said of the man of lawlessness and the son of destruction in 2 Thessalonians 2, 3, and also in the book of Revelation, he called him the beast. So, so we're going to see these false Christs. Then secondly, Jesus said, there's going to be disputes and warfare among the nations. If you look at verse 6, look what it says. 
Matthew 24, 6. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. We're not going to have the birthing of Christ, second coming, yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Let's stop there. The second birth will, be, will, will involve intensified and unparalleled disputes and warfare among the nations of the earth. We're already seeing the beginnings of that. It's always been, but it's going to intensify, folks. There, there, will, there will be constant talk of actual wars and rumors of wars to a degree that the earth's never experienced. If you follow the analogy of labor pains, again, the implication, it's going to increase, it's going to intensify. But believers during that time should not be frightened. Those after the church has been raptured, people are still going to get saved. Why? Because there's going to be 144,000 Jews, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel, that God's going to raise up and they're going to broadcast, witness that Jesus is Messiah. There's going to be an unparalleled period of great outpouring of God of his salvation message and a response unlike anything we've ever experienced. And, and, but I'm telling you that uh, in this time, they, they will, these folks will be experiencing warfare. They will experience nation against nation. So that just is simply a sign that the, the end is coming. Another thing that he speaks of in chapter 7, or verse 7, uh, towards the end of the verse, devastation throughout the world. Write that one down. Devastation throughout the world. And there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. So next is worldwide devastation. In addition to the deception of false Christ and the dissensions among the nations, there's going to be famines and earthquakes and natural disasters. By the way, what we have seen and experienced in our lifetime doesn't come close to what is going to happen on the earth. Luke adds that there will also be plagues and terrors and great signs from heaven. That's Luke chapter 21, verse 11. So, earthquakes, epidemics, deadly diseases, dreadful happenings of various sorts, awesome changes in the sky. These are going to torment men on the earth. They will see the world begin to disintegrate before their eyes from the unbridled, destructive force of evil. It all comes out of evil. By the way, today in our, in our day, look at the number of people who worship Mother Earth, nature. They worship it. Uh, my wife and I like to watch, in fact, my mom and dad are sitting in here, and they'll watch it with us, that, that, that series alone where they take these people and put them up in like the far north, northern sections of Canada and Alaska and wherever, even, even parts of the United States, and they have to live and exist for 30 days or 60 or as long as they can. One of them was for a, for a year. Can you imagine that? And, uh, and you'll, some of these people get on there and they are worshiping earth. They'll, they'll catch a fish and they begin to break out in tears. Oh, oh, oh. I can't take the life of this animal, but I need to eat at all. Can you imagine when these things start happening, the destruction that's coming to the earth, and the earth is beginning to literally disintegrate? Those people are going to freak out. And who are they going to be mad at? God. God. They're mad at God now. It's only going to intensify. 
In his parallel passage, Mark reports that Jesus said, they will deliver you to the courts, you will be flogged in the synagogues, you will stand before God. See, what's going to happen is they can't get to God for what he's doing to the earth, so now they're going to come after believers. So that's, let's look at verse 9. That's the next thing. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my namesake. So what's that point? Deliver, deliverance of believers to tribulation. As we get to the end, it's going to intensify deliverance of believers to tribulation. And, and I think it's going to get really bad. We're talking about those who are saved after the rapture of the church. They're going to be converted to Christ during the tribulation, and they will suffer for it. In fact, Revelation records that under the altar are the saints who are martyred, and they're crying out for vengeance from the Lord. When will you avenge those who took our lives? course the Lord will. But many will be saved during that time. It's just that if you're saved in that period of time, you're going to suffer greatly. Jesus is going to address that next chapter as well and, and, and later in this chapter. Paul actually said he bore in his body the marks of Christ. That's in Galatians 6, 17, the brand marks of Jesus. He was affirming that he had received wounds, listen, not because of himself, he received, received wounds that were meant for Jesus. People who were striking him and wounding him because of Jesus. Are you even ready for that? The Bible says that if you're a believer, you are. Because if you're a believer, you're a martus. You're a witness for Jesus. You're willing as a witness to die if necessary. This is serious stuff. And then he says, defection of false believers, verse 10, and then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Jesus mentions these three signs of defection. One, the cost will be too high. That's why people will leave Christ. The cost is too high. The second one, the deception of false teachers will be too convincing. Some are going to fall away because they just believe that teacher. Supposed. By the way, no false teacher wears a sign on his chest, I'm a false teacher. And Because, because they, they, they come across as if they're saved. And they're convincing. And you're deceived. You say, oh, I won't be deceived. I, I couldn't be deceived. That's what deception is. You don't know it. The only people who won't be deceived are those who are truly saved. When he says that at the end, but those who endure to the end will be saved, he's not saying that your endurance is going to save you. He's saying that only those who God is in, who has marked, he's marked them with the Holy Spirit, only they will not be deceived say, well, how will I know if I'm saved? Will you endure at the end? Even right now in our lifetime, there's pressure on a Christian. Do you stand for Christ or do you cower away? That's a pretty interesting thing to think about. It could be that you're, you're playing Christian, that you're not truly saved. The Bible says if you're truly saved, you will persevere to the end. You're, you're not going to cower in fear. 
Are you cowering in fear? Do you hide the fact that you're saved from your, the people at work and people, family members and you know, friends? Chances are you're not saved. Something to think about. So Jesus addresses these things. He also says, uh, the third thing is, another sign of the defection of false believers is the sin will be too attractive. Not only are there going to be these deceptive people who are going to sway you if you're not saved away from God, but man, sin's going to look really good in the end. 1 John 2.19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would, not, they would have continued with us. But they, were, they went out, that it might not become plain that they, are all, they all are not of us. Jesus said, if you abide in my word, then you are truly my disciples. If you abide in my word, if you make, listen, the scripture, the word of God, the promises of God, if you make them your home, abide is to reside. You want the scripture to reside in you. You don't just know it here, oh, I can quote scripture. No, no, it's your life. I live the truth of God's word. In a day when that is, listen, this is no longer, you know, it's certainly not a, you know, a, even a post you know, Christian culture. We're, we're, this is a secular culture. Relative truth pushed by secular secularists. Their one goal is to completely trample underfoot the authority and the absolute truth of God's immutable word. They, they want it gone. And they will mock you, they will laugh at you in the university they will do whatever they can and will and, and, and to, to make you look like a fool. And only those who are truly saved will continue to stand. We have a friend who, a young man who was friends with Mark, our son, and he was in our local college here in town, and he was in a classroom, and the, the professor was mocking Christians. And the class, the whole class was laughing. And then this boy stood and said, no, I'm a believer. They, just, they lost it. They laughed at him. He wouldn't back down. He didn't apologize. He could care less what they thought. He was letting them know, no, I truly believe the Bible. You believe that antiquated Neanderthal book? Yeah, I do. You believe there's one way to God? You believe that, you know, yeah, that's what Jesus said. I believe it. Do you? Are you willing to stand for Christ? A professed Christian who turns his back on Jesus Christ and refuses to suffer for his namesake probably isn't a true believer to begin with. A person who genuinely belongs to Christ may sometimes falter and be disobedient, but he will never reject his Lord. The person who belongs to Christ continues to confess him, continues to serve him, and to suffer for him when it's necessary. He does not endure because of his own strength and fortitude, but because he is indwelt by Christ's own spirit, who never fails to give sustaining grace to God's children. That's a fact. That's a promise. 
The writer of Hebrews sounded the warning to those in the early church. He said this in Hebrews 3.12, Take care, brethren, lest there should be in any, of, any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart in falling, falling away from the living God. Paul declared to Timothy, It is a trustworthy statement, for if, in, for if we died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. This is not an easy word for the church, is it? But it's a necessary word. In verse 11, the deception will be too convincing. Write that one down. The deception will be too convincing. And, and, and that's what we see here. And then, of course, the last part of that was that sin will be so mesmerizing. People will just follow Christ or follow false Christ because the sin looks too good. i got to have it. Now, the last part, verse 14, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. That's a declaration of the gospel to the whole world. That's the last point, a declaration of the gospel to the whole world. We won't know that it's the end until literally the whole world has heard the gospel, and they will. They will. I love that. See, even knowing that the world is on a downward spiral, even knowing that if you read Revelation and you see that the 21 judgments coming to the earth, yet throughout God is trying to redeem. He's continually communicating that he is God who is just in his judgments. And you can still turn to Christ up until the very end. God holds out that people will be saved. He's a loving God. But that will never, listen, God's love will never, be, will, will never trump his judgment. Judgment is coming. Just like a good father. My dad's here today, uh, 88 years old, and here he is in church, and I just love it. But when I was a boy, man, if we went to somebody's house and my parents said, no running in the house, and they always said that, and my friend Lawrence Wainwright and I come running right through that house, my dad would look over at me, give me that look, or my mom would give me that look. And if my dad gave me that look, let me tell you what it meant. You better, you better sit down right now, and if there's not a chair, find something that looks like a chair and get in it. Stop what you're doing now. And when I got home, the, the misery hit the fan, let me tell you. He put the plaster where the misery is, let me tell you. And, uh, yeah, but he always did it lovingly, but he did it. See, he's a true loving earthly father a true loving earthly father will not ignore the sin he will use that sin in our life to teach us because he loves us that much and I, I love that about my father and I'm glad that that's my heavenly father even to the end judgment's coming but oh he's still trying to reach he's still trying to show grace and love I had an experience this week with Rini. We were, Rini and I went over to St. Pete. And I'm going to write about this this week. In fact, I've already written. Uh, I want to post either by video. Deb had an idea of maybe doing a series of videos. And that, we might just do that. But I'll tell you more about it. But just to go into it at the close here a little bit. We went over just for a week, a getaway. Uh, we hadn't had vacation in quite a while, so we took a week. Went to St. Pete. We liked that town because if you've ever been there, it's kind of quaint. And it's kind of a nice city. Uh, 
a lot of oak trees right downtown, the sidewalks, you can ride bikes and little, we were scooting around, guys, I know, look, 300 pounds, you know, right here on a popsicle stick, my little skinny legs holding up all this, I don't weigh 300 pounds, by the way, uh, some of you are like, really, <laughs> Pastor Greg, <laughs> but uh, here I am on a, we rode these little electronic scooters around the city of uh, St. Pete and just had a blast together. But we went to a restaurant that's down by the water by Tampa Bay there off of St. Pete. And there's a little airport just across a little marina and a little safe harbor that you can come in from Tampa Bay. And we got there right around 5 o'clock. And so the sun is kind of getting ready to set. And we see boats that are going out, sailboats, and even kayaker was going out uh, into the open bay. Which you'd think, that's cool. 5 o'clock in the evening, you're going to see the sunset and all that beautiful stuff. Only problem was... When we got to the restaurant, they seated us by the window looking out, and we could see a huge thunderhead off in the distance, and behind it, gray. The whole sky was gray. And I said, that thing's moving in, but it's still calm where we're at, you know? People are sitting outside, and we're sitting just inside by the window, and we're watching planes taking off and landing and boats coming in and out. Some guy had a little tiki bar on like a 12-foot... Uh, barge with a little 40-horse kicker on it, and he's taking people out on this tiki bar who are sitting on stools going out, and they're just drinking, going out into the bay, you know? Then he brings them back, and he brings another group out. He's heading out, and I'm going, hmm, that thing doesn't move very fast. And I said, honey, this is going to get interesting. And sure enough, man, about the time, what, 15, 20 minutes in, the wind picked up. All the people that were sitting outside came inside. We looked out. I saw this storm coming in aggressively. I saw an airplane, a little two-seater, take off right there at the end of the runway going over the bay. He takes off. He starts to ascend, and all of a sudden, boom! He couldn't have been more than 50, 75 feet from the water. It Literally, the wind just thrust that little plane down. He was doing everything he could to regain ascent. And I thought, oh my goodness, that little tiki bar, that guy was trying to turn that thing in that wind and head back in, and all these people who have been drinking, they're sitting on these bar stools, and that thing's just rocking, man. A little 12-foot in these whitewater uh, bay, you know. It was, a, it, was, it was funny, but it wasn't funny because people were in harm's way. And we, the little kayaker, you know, somebody, a boat came to kind of help him, and boats are coming into the marina, the safe harbor. And later, I was just reflecting on that. The next morning, I, I, Rini went out to run, and I just sat downstairs and was thinking about it. And it hit me. Everybody there was dismissive of the storm that was brewing. It was almost the attitude of, you know, well, if it comes, we'll deal with it. But it might not, so I'm going to go have, do what I plan to do. Problem with that line of thinking is, if the storm comes in, you don't deal with it. It deals with you. And that's what we were seeing. People who were unprepared and unwilling to address and adapt to what was about to happen. I see that in the world today. And I see Christians who are kind of like going along with it. We're cruising along through life. Ah, yeah, it's getting worse, but you know, what are you going to do? 
we're going to find that Jesus said that before he returns, the whole world, the earth, is going to hear the gospel. So what should we be about right now? Sharing the gospel. What? Warning people of the impending storm. It's a storm of judgment from God for the sins of mankind, and we ought to be communicating that with people. Are you? This is where the Lord, I believe, has us today in this teaching. Are we recognizing the signs of the times in our day, and are we communicating with people so that some might be saved? Risking our own status, even jobs, to tell people the truth. We could be persecuted, and some of us already have been. God wants all of us to be persecuted for his, his name's sake. Jesus said, you're blessed if you're persecuted. Sobering message, isn't it? It wouldn't go over in a church that's just all about the social gospel. This is the real gospel. God created, man fell, Jesus redeemed, and God is restoring people back to himself through the gospel that is to be proclaimed by us to this lost world. Father, this morning we thank you for your love for us, that you reached us in our sin. We were destined for hell. We could not save ourselves, but you brought the light of truth to us. You gave us the faith to believe. You gave us regeneration by the Holy Spirit, something we could never do on our own. We were dead to our sins, but you redeemed us. And you redeemed us for a purpose. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. You want us to take advantage of the opportunities each and every day to share the gospel, the good news with those that we meet. Lord, embolden Vero Bible Fellowship. The answer is not some all-church event. The answer is not some discipleship program. The answer is in the Great Commission. Go into all the world. Preach, proclaim, herald the gospel. Teaching them everything that I've commanded you. They're going to be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. But teach them everything I've commanded Oh God, may we be faithful to that work, both in the church and as we go about our day in this world. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We'll come back next week and we'll look at chapter 24, uh, the last part. Hey, listen, by the way, we have elders and we have prayer partners who will be up front. If you need prayer over any matter in your life, again, we're here to minister to people. People are the reason we gather the church is people, right? So come receive ministry if you need it. Our, our folks are more than happy to pray with you, okay? God bless you. Have a wonderful day. Go preach Christ.